Well, I'd like to ask you to uh, have in front of you uh, our text for today, which is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, You'll want to have those verses in front of you, either uh, in your own Bible or in the worship guide. Uh, We we don't stand up here every week because we've got something clever to say. We stand up here week after week because God has spoken, and His Word is reliable and true, and in it He's... He's revealed supremely uh, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel that's announced in His name. And so we want to give our attention to God's Word. For the last few weeks, we've uh, been studying the gospel according to Mark. And as we've worked our way through the first chapter, what we've been seeing each week is that Mark, uh, in certain intentional ways, is pointing us to the unique identity and authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's how he introduces his gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is saying these things about Jesus right out of the gate, and if you're following him so far, even through just this first chapter, uh, you've heard, we've heard together a number of very powerful things, remarkable things about Jesus already. He's the Son of God. He's the one who was foretold by the prophets, including John the Baptist. He's the one who identifies with his people because he's come to bear their sin. He's the one who endures suffering and temptation at the hands of Satan by the will of his Father and for the sake of his people. He's the one who preaches a message of repentance and faith in light of the coming of God's kingdom. He's the one who calls people to leave behind their old ways and come and follow him. And he's the one who has unique authority to teach the word of God, to command and rebuke even evil spirits, demonic powers, to cleanse the lepers, to heal the sick, and in all of this, to reverse all of the effects of sin that have ravaged human beings. And those effects of sin have not left you alone either. And you and I need to know this morning that as those who live in a world that is broken and ravaged by the effects of sin, not just our own sin, but the sins of others, you need to see again this morning that Jesus Christ is uniquely and powerfully the one who has come to turn back the effects of sin in this world and in the lives of those who trust in his name. And so far, people we've seen in Mark are amazed at him, and they, sh- they, they really should be. They really should be amazed at someone who does the kind of things that Jesus has been doing so far. But what we begin to see today is different. Because when the kingdom of God arrives in Jesus Christ, as it has, while it's true that everyone's amazed, that they marvel, that they're, they're astounded at the amazing stuff that he does... It's also true that some are angry and hostile. When the kingdom of God comes, there will be some who receive it with welcome, and there will be some who resist it in anger and hostility. And that's what we begin to see today in Mark chapter 2. And so beginning with this passage that we're looking at, we have five, five sequential episodes that Mark records, events that unfold in Jesus' life and ministry. And each of these events reveals to us some of the conflict that comes 
when the kingdom of God comes. Now, it's unlikely that these five events happened in this order. They happened. They're historical events that are recorded for us here. But it's unlikely that they, that they happened consecutively. Instead, what Mark has done is he's pulled them together in this order to make a specific point. And that is to highlight the conflict that arises in the world and in the hearts of human beings when the kingdom of God comes. And it's a conflict that continues throughout the gospel and culminates in the death of Jesus Christ. So let's give our attention uh, to the scriptures. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning them in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Now, the text is actually cut off there in your bulletin. So I'm going to read the rest of it, and you just listen up. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word which is truth, and we ask that you would open it up to us. Give us eyes to see the truth, minds that can receive it and believe it, and hearts that are soft and ready for you to speak and ready to respond. And so, Lord, uh, we, we are your people, and we're gathered here together, and we ask that you would speak, Lord, and enable us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come here to Mark chapter 2, one of the first things that you notice is there's a certain setting that Mark gives us. And if you've been here the last few weeks and you've been noticing what Mark has been telling us in chapter 1, you'll notice that when he says that Jesus returns to Capernaum, that he is returning to a place that he's been before here in Mark chapter 1. It's a place that should ring some bells for us. Uh, what we find as we read the Gospels, and that, that includes Mark's account, is that Jesus had made Capernaum his adopted hometown. 
And he had been here earlier. He had been healing. He had been cleansing. He had been teaching. He had been amazing people with his authority. But then he left. Quite surprisingly, actually, his disciples find him out in a lonely place early in the morning while it's still dark. Jesus, where are you? There's lots to be done. There are people looking for you. And Jesus says, come on, let's leave and go to the other towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come out. And so they travel through the surrounding areas of Galilee, and and he is met by a leper who he cleanses along the way somewhere. And he preaches, and and his fame, Mark tells us, spreads throughout the whole region of Galilee. Now he's come back. Now he's come back to Capernaum. And what we find is that the word has gotten out that Jesus was at home, which probably means that he was at Simon Peter's house, where we found him a few weeks ago, where he was staying there with Peter and with his wife and perhaps with Peter's mother-in-law, who Jesus had healed earlier in that very house. And so the place, uh, the place is packed. People find out he's there. They flock to the house. Now, we don't know exactly the size of Peter's home, but uh, I discovered this week that the largest homes, even the largest homes that have been excavated uh, in this area from this period of time, were no more than about 18 feet in length. And so, conceivably, we could have had several dozen people packed into this very small space, and even as we're told, outside the door, there are people pressing, trying to look and see, trying to get in. There's no room even at the door. And we're told by Mark that Jesus was there, presumably right in the middle of the home inside, surrounded by these people. And what's he doing? He's preaching the word to them, Mark says. Now, there were basically three components to Jesus' ministry. There's preaching and teaching, there's healing, and there's exorcism. And Jesus is very clear about which of those has priority. And it's preaching. It's, it's his work of preaching that he prioritizes. He will often leave opportunities to heal in order to go and preach for, he says, that is why I have come out. But the problem is that people kept misunderstanding this. You see, his, his miraculous deeds, the healings, the casting out of demons, the displays of authority had one purpose. John, in his gospel, refers to Jesus' miracles with a special vocabulary. He calls them all signs. Now, children, you can think about this. What do signs do? They point to something else. Signs aren't there to draw attention to themselves. Signs are there to point you somewhere else. And that's precisely what Jesus' signs were intended to do. Specifically, they were to point to the power of the kingdom of God that had come and call people to repent and believe in Jesus, the king. But people were misunderstanding this. They were amazed at the display of power. Wow, he's healing the sick. He's cleansing the leper. He's teaching with authority. They were amazed at what he was doing, but they were missing the point of the power, which is they should repent and believe in the gospel. Everything that Jesus was doing pointed to this reality. The kingdom of God has come, so it's time for you to leave what you've been doing, leave what you've been living for, and come and follow me. So here's Jesus in this house, and he's, he's preaching the word to all these people who are gathered here. And we need to notice who's there. Because there are, seems to me, there are three distinct groups of people who are in this house. First of all, you find in verse 2 that Mark says there, there were many gathered together. That might not seem like anything special, but so far throughout Mark, he's talking a lot about the many or the crowd. Okay, There's a lot of people who follow Jesus around. 
There's a big crowd, and some of them are just there because there's this general buzz and hype and excitement surrounding the ministry of Jesus. As I said, Mark's already told us that Jesus' fame had spread everywhere throughout the whole region, and there were some people who were they're just there, they're casually interested in what's going on. So that's one group of people. And we'll come back and talk about them some more later. But there's a second group of people. Notice in verse 6 that some of the scribes were, and I think this is an interesting detail for Mark, sitting there. That's never, uh, I don't think that's ever a really positive thing to say. I want people to say I was the guy who was sitting there. Okay, the scribes were sitting there, Mark tells us in verse 6. Now, who were the scribes? Elsewhere in, in the New Testament, they're called experts in the law. These were the biblical scholars and theologians of the day, the teachers of the day, the the men who would submit articles for the theological journals and periodicals and speak at the scholarly conferences and so forth. So there were some of them who were there. Luke tells us in his account of this event, there were also some Pharisees that were there. So some of them are sitting there in the house listening to Jesus preach, and very significantly, this is the day when hatred for Jesus begins to grow in some of their hearts. And then there's one more group of people. And it's a group of five. And it's, of course, this paralytic man and his four friends. There's a man, we're not told many details about him, his age, how long he's been paralyzed, how he got paralyzed, his relationship to those who carry him. But we're told there are four men who are carrying him on his mat, presumably the mat that he's laying on all the time, his bed, his mat, his cot, whatever it might have been. And so it's this group of men, the paralytic man especially, who along with Jesus are at the center of this story, of this scene here in Mark chapter 2. Now like so many other people, this paralytic man wanted to see Jesus. Remember, Jesus had been healing people all over the place. And the word had spread. So of course this Man was eager to see Jesus. He was hoping that he would heal him. And so these four men are carrying him on his mat. But when they get to the house, what do they see? Oh, it's packed. There's no way in. The house is packed. The area around the door is packed. And they can't get in. Now, I wonder what some of us would have... It takes some imagination. It's right, when you come to a narrative like this, it's right to have it engage your imagination a little bit. I hope you do that. But I wonder how, how some of us would have responded. You're, you're carrying your friend who's paralyzed, who's longing to see Jesus, hoping to see him. You get to the house where you know he is, and there's no way to get in. I wonder how, how some of us would have, would have responded. Oh, man, I, I'm sorry. I, I really was hoping we could get you to him today. I guess we'll have to come back another day. Maybe we'll try later, uh, maybe tomorrow. And maybe some of them began to think that way. Maybe that's what they did think at first. But at some point, somebody had a plan. Uh, Hey, guys, I have an idea. Let's get him in through the roof. And again, I wonder... I wonder how some of us would have responded. What, what if you're one of the four and uh, another of the four come up with this? I wonder how some of us would have responded. Are you, I mean, are you kidding me? This is Peter's house. I don't think he and his wife particularly want you to dig through their roof. It's full of people. Jesus is preaching the word. It's kind of a big deal. Since that's a terrible idea, what are, you, what are you talking about going through the roof? Well, at some point, they agree. 
They agree on this as a plan. Because here's here's this poor paralytic man who's lying on his mat. He's been lying on his mat day after day, year after year. We don't know exactly how long, but now he knows. He's convinced that this is the day when that changes. Because this is the day when he's going to go see Jesus. And again, I can't help but wonder and just think, is it possible that this paralyzed man is laying on his bed and he's listening to his friends go back and forth about what to do now? Do we leave and come back later? Do we go through the roof? What do we do? Perhaps this paralyzed man says, guys, I I know this is crazy, but I really need you to do whatever it takes. You've got to get me to Jesus. You've got to get me to him. I need you to get me to Jesus, please. It's a desperately needy man. He knows his need. He knows his inability. And he's convinced that he needs to see Jesus. And that Jesus could help him. And he's sure of that. And we know that because of something we'll see again in a few minutes from this text. So what do they do? Okay. So this house would have had an external staircase. And noticing that they could not get in through the crowd, they take the staircase and it leads up to a flat roof. And they climb up there carrying their their friend with him on his mat. Now, these roofs were not like our roofs. And so you children, some of you may be imagining the pitched roof of your house and you're wondering how in the world, not like that, different kind of house. They walk up an external flight of stairs. It's a flat roof. And it was sturdy enough to walk around up there. You could sit, you could lie down, you could rest, you could visit. You could eat, you could spend time up on the roof. That was customary. But the, 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 the typical construction uh, would have been uh, sturdy enough to stand on, but also straightforward enough to dig through. It would have been branches and rushes laid across the, the beams of the roof and probably had some dried mud caked on there as well. So they walk up there and they begin to dig. They begin to dig a hole through the roof. Now, literally, it's interesting what Mark says. He says, Because they were not able to approach him because of the crowd, they unroofed the roof. And they start digging and they start tearing and pulling. And you start thinking about yourself on top of a roof with dried mud and rushes and branches and and stuff. And you start digging your way through and they make a hole large enough evidently to put an average sized man laying down on his mat through the roof. This is a good bit of digging. Now, meanwhile, what's going on? Underneath this roof, there's a bunch of people, maybe 50 people, I don't know. And Jesus is preaching the word to them. And people are standing outside the door and they're listening to his preaching, which he's been doing with great authority to the amazement of many people. And then what, what, do you hear that? What, what's that? What's that noise up there? And they dig a hole through the roof in order to let this man down. Why would they do such a crazy thing? This is a fairly familiar story. And we may stop asking questions that we really should ask. Why would they do this? Why would they take their friend up here? Presumably, he's in favor. They're all involved here. Why would they do this? Why would they lower this man down through the roof on his bed while Jesus is preaching? Here's why. Because that is what faith in Christ does. Faith in Christ goes to Christ without delay, without hindrance, without obstacle. It goes to him. Martin Luther said this, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. 
I think that's great. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. That's why their actions were so bold. That's why they did what they did. That's why they were willing to do such a strange thing. Because their faith in Christ, their daring confidence in what he would do for this man, their bold expectations of the grace of Jesus Christ to them, whatever exactly they understood that to mean. But they were, sure, they were so sure of it, they were willing to stake their lives on it, to stake their reputations on it. Don't you think they had to stake their reputations on this? Do you want to be the crazy guy digging a hole through the roof? They didn't care. The paralytic man didn't care. Get me to Jesus. And I think, by the way, if I could offer this as a, by way of application, this is why some of you are, are weak and fearful and you lack boldness. You lack boldness in your service to Christ. You lack boldness in your witness. You lack boldness in your own struggles with sin. Because your faith has grown weak. There's not this daring confidence in the grace of God to you, a sinner in Christ. So now here the paralytic is on his mat. He's in the middle of Peter's house now. People all around him. Jesus right there in front of him, who's, I would imagine, no longer preaching, but watching. This room full of wide open jaws. So, how would Jesus respond? Well, here's what Mark tells us. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, exactly what everyone in the room was expecting. My son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus sees their faith, Mark tells us. Now, what kind of faith? What did he see? Were they expecting his sins to be forgiven? Was the young paralytic man expecting to have his sins forgiven? Was that what he was going for? Probably not. Probably they were looking for the healing of his paralysis. That's what Jesus had been busy doing. But what does Jesus see? Jesus sees that they had, they, their faith, Mark tells us, he sees that they had absolute confidence in who Jesus was and what he would do for them and for this man. He sees that they put everything on the line to get to him. He sees that they believed with conviction that Jesus was someone who could help this man who could not help himself. So he, he sees their faith and he forgives this man's sin. Now that's a surprise. That's a surprise. Now, of course, Jesus will later say, which, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, get up your bed, take up your bed and walk? And that's an interesting question. From the human perspective, what's easier is to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because, well, I prove that. There's no visible demonstration that that command has been actuated. So, okay, you can walk up and say to somebody... Your sins are forgiven. Well, okay. I don't, okay. From the human side of things, the harder thing is to say, get up and pick up your bed and walk. Because you either pass or fail that one immediately. So Jesus is exposing, he's accommodating to what he understands them to be thinking, but he's also turning the tables because he's helping them to begin to realize what's really the hard thing. For Jesus, the easy thing is to say, get up. I made that body. I created that body in the womb of your mother. 
I've been governing your body for the whole of your existence, even before you knew I existed. Get, get up. Walk. That's nothing. The costly thing for Jesus is to forgive sins because that will mean his own death. So Jesus sees their faith. He responds and he forgives sin. And in fact, the word Jesus uses there in verse 5 when he says your sins are forgiven, the word he uses communicates that the man's sins are being forgiven at that very moment. And that's how it would have been heard and understood. Jesus isn't just saying, he's not just stating a fact. God will forgive you. He's actually accomplishing the very thing he's announcing. Your sins at this moment are forgiven. That's what's so offensive. That's what makes some people so angry. You see it there in verses 6 and 7. They're angry. They begin to grumble among themselves. Who does he think he is? He's a blasphemer. He's claiming to do things that only God can do. Now, of course, in one sense, they're right, aren't they? It is true that only God can forgive sin. But in light of all they'd been seeing... In light of all they'd been hearing from Jesus, what is the thing that perhaps they should have considered? That he actually had the authority to do precisely what he said he was there to do. To actually forgive sins and reconcile people to God. And immediately Jesus knows what the scribes are thinking. And he speaks to them about these accusations they're leveling against him in their hearts. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Chilling. He just read their minds. He exposes their secret thoughts right in front of everyone. And they knew he was right. And it should have caused them to submit to him and trust him, but it didn't. Instead, their hearts grew harder. Because what Jesus is beginning to do now, and he continues it in verse 10 as he claims to be the Son of Man, this glorious, divine, kingly figure from Daniel chapter 7 Jesus is beginning to tip his hand. He's beginning to push things forward. He will not have them relate to him simply as a powerful figure, a healer, a teacher. He will not allow them to deal with him that way. Because he is beginning to teach them to reveal slowly but clearly that he is nothing less than God himself, the God King, come in his kingdom and in his power to forgive sins. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am God. I am the divine King whose kingdom will never end. And I am here right now. And young man, son, your sins are forgiven on my authority. And then to prove it, to prove his divine authority, what does he say? He turns and says, get up and go home. And he gets up and goes home. And everybody is astounded. And they say, We have never seen anything like this. And they had not. Because they had never seen anyone like this. Because there is no one like this. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one with his power. There's no one with his glory. There's no one with his grace. There's no one with his kindness and compassion. There's no one with his mercy. There's no one with his wisdom, with his knowledge. The Son of Man, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And where is he and what is he doing? He's in a house surrounded by sinners. Preaching the gospel to them because he's come to die for the sins of his people. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
And to do that by giving his life as a ransom for many. C.S. Lewis was absolutely right when he wrote this so powerfully in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here, he says, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is, Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So I want to ask you today, I want to ask you if you've ever come to know Jesus like this. I mean, like he presents himself to be. The son of man. The one who has unique authority to forgive sins. Have you come to know him as your savior? As your high priest? Have you heard him say to you, son, your sins are forgiven? Have you ever gone to Jesus? Some of you perhaps never have. Have you gone to Jesus and said, I need you. I need you to touch me. I need you to heal me. I cannot do it myself. I'm broken. I'm I'm miserable. I'm sinful. I'm lost. I need you. Have you ever said, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I need to get to Jesus? Because the truth is, if you haven't done that, if you haven't come to Jesus as your high priest you don't know him as your savior, if you don't know him as your Jesus, then however interested you may be in him, you're still lost in your sins. The holiness of God makes it absolutely necessary that you have a priest and a sacrifice between yourself and God, and Jesus alone is that sacrifice. Jesus alone is that priest that we need, that priest that you need. And so Mark really wants you, I think, to to look at this story and to ask yourself, where do I fit in this story? Am I like the scribes? Maybe maybe some of you are, are there this morning. Like the scribes who are sitting there, you're bright, you're capable, you're sitting and listening and resisting and questioning and doubting and disputing in your own minds. You know, it's interesting that whatever you're thinking, whatever your objections, whatever your questions about Jesus, about Christianity, Jesus right now is alive at God's right hand, and he knows what you're thinking. He knows exactly what you're thinking right now. I, I don't know what you're thinking, but he knows what you're thinking. He understands the, the situation of your own heart and your own mind this morning. And he says to you the same thing he said to the scribes. Why do you question these things in your heart? That's Jesus' word to you this morning. If you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, 
And I think Mark would press you to recognize that as you read through this gospel, you'll, you'll see that the only ones who actually receive mercy from Jesus are not those who rest in their own intuition about who He is and what He can do. The ones who receive mercy from Jesus are those who finally get to the point where they resolve not to trust in their own intelligence, not to trust in their own observations, but to go to Him with confidence. Let me ask you this this morning. If this is where you are, is it wise or is it safe for you to resist the only one who can forgive you of your sins and the only one who can restore you? So maybe you're, maybe you're there. Maybe you're one of the scribes. Then again, maybe you're one of the crowd. You're here. You're not consciously resisting questioning, doubting, but you're just part of the crowd. We've seen this in Mark. Being in the crowd doesn't mean that you're a disciple. And some of you probably need to hear that because you are casually interested in Jesus. You're here. You probably, maybe you're willing to be here because your life is, is a mess and you're hoping that if you hang around Jesus enough, He'll make it better somehow. But Jesus gives a very different picture of Himself here, doesn't He? His first response is not relief. His first response is redemption. And that's what all of us need this morning. We often come to Jesus and we want Him to repair our house. But Jesus hasn't come to repair our house. He hasn't come to renovate your house, your life. He's come to bring the wrecking ball of His grace to it. Demolish it. And say, you've been wanting the wrong things and you've even been wanting good things badly. You've been making good things ultimate things and you've lost the sight of this fact that those good things, even if you had them, would never save you or make you well. And so Jesus comes to destroy houses and to rebuild them according to His blueprint, not yours. And so if you're a casual observer, looking on, Mark says you mustn't think that Jesus has come to make your life work well. He's come to say... Your greatest need is not relief, but redemption. Now, will that hurt? Does it hurt to submit yourself to Jesus like that? Some of you know that very personally. Yes, it hurts. It often hurts to say, Jesus, I don't want you to make things work better. I want you to make me whole. I want you to heal me. I want you to forgive me. I want you to save me. But you see, the more you stay shallow, if you're staying on the surface with Jesus, with the church, you're actually being the enemy of your own humanity. Because Jesus is the one who made you, and He's the only one who can restore you to who He wants you to be. But for that to happen, you have to let Him go down deep into those places. And to make you new. To make you new His way. That's what Jesus was teaching everybody in this house in Capernaum that morning. As kind as it was for Him to heal this man, what was the kindest thing He did for him? Forgave him. Forgave him his sins. One author has put it this way. 
Jesus knows that we don't need someone who can just grant our wishes. We need someone who can go deeper than that. Someone who will use his claws lovingly and carefully to pierce our self-centeredness and remove the sin that enslaves us and distorts even our beautiful longings. In short, we need to be forgiven. That's the only way for our discontent to be healed. It will take more than a miracle worker or a divine genie. It will take a savior. That's what the paralytic saw. Is that what you're seeing this morning? Are you seeing your need? Believer or unbeliever? If an unbeliever, are you first, for the first time now seeing, I need to get to Jesus? And if so, you get to him, not by efforts, but by faith. I believe. And for you who belong to Christ and are seeking the grace to follow him, do you see that your need is the same? I need to get to Jesus. I need him. I need the one who forgives me and makes me whole. That's your greatest need. It's the greatest need, the greatest thing in the whole world. To stand in Jesus' presence, to stand before him and to hear him say to you, my son, my daughter, my child, your sins are forgiven. And there's not one of you here today, not one of you here today, who can't hear those words from this Savior. Because as surely as I'm standing here in front of you, Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive you. And he has the compassion and the mercy to save you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who has authority to forgive sins. I pray that if there are people who are here this morning with us, who are sitting there and they're questioning, they're doubting in their hearts, that you would break through and capture them. I pray that if there are some here who are in the crowd but not following Christ, that you would convince them that their need is much deeper than they realize and that Jesus is much greater than they've yet comprehended. And for all those here who feel like the paralytic, their great need, their great need for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness, for restoration, convince us all again of the greatness of both the power and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And draw us again to him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.